I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On Friday, February 16th, 2018, 20-year-old Ryan Stuka finished working at Sun Peak Ski Resort in British Columbia, Canada. After work, he went home and later went to a silent disco at one of the local pubs. Later that same night, he would end up at a house not far from the pub, hanging out and drinking with some friends and roommates until the early hours of Saturday, February 17th. Sometime around 2 a.m., Ryan looked to be leaving the party, but would seemingly vanish without a trace into the snowy abyss of Sun Peaks. In this third episode, I talked to Heather about searching for Ryan, as well as Alan Hobler from Sar Kamloops and Jerry Tromblay, a volunteer who helped search for Ryan. You're listening to a podcast for the missing with me, Tyler Hooper. His house um, where he lived um, was very close to where the party house was, and there was really only two or three different routes he could have taken to get there, and really obvious routes. Um, and there was lots of snow uh, the night before he disappeared, and the snow was really soft and deep, so to actually leave any paths or trails um, would have been really obvious, and even if he had stumbled or fallen off a path uh, it should have been really obvious um, so kind of pretty early on it really felt like we had a mystery Ryan's friends reported Ryan missing on the evening of February 17th after he didn't show up for work or come home that day as you'll recall from the last episode Heather received a text from Ryan's friend James telling her that they couldn't find Ryan and that the police would be calling them shortly. After talking with the RCMP, Heather and Scott packed up some things, got in their car, and started making the agonizing nine-and-a-half-hour drive to Sun Peaks. The following minutes, hours, and days would be a blur as they tried to understand what happened to their son. And I remember that moment because I'm looking at it and the girls are looking at me and I don't think at the time I mean Juliana was only 12 Jordan's 18 I, I don't 
it was so shockful. Like you're so shocked. I I don't think about like this is a conversation Scott and I ha- should have, and then we'll gently ease the girls into it. We're just all stunned thinking and all of us even the 12 year old knows this is completely out of character for for ryan and i just remember going upstairs going i have to pack a bag and my 18 year old jordan is just putting things in my in a bag i'm like i don't know what i need like what would i need like what do i like what are we what are we gonna do i wonder how long we're gonna be there like i wonder where we're gonna stay and i'm just talking out loud and jordan's just putting stuff in a bag for both scott and i um to go up and we packed our bags and then I remember Scott calling his mom to see if she could come over um, to be with the girls. And then we left. We left at about 10.30 and drove nine and a half hours to, to Sun Peaks to arrive at about 6 o'clock the next morning. It was the longest, I think, and the shortest drive. Like, I, like we didn't have, there was, it's not like you're listening to music, um, and Scott's like, you should rest. And I'm like, I, I, like, I, there's no way I can sleep. Like, I could leave 15 minutes from my home and be in a passenger sleep and uh, in a seat, and I'll be, my eyes will be closed. And then this particular case, I'm like, I, I, I can't. And I just, I had this, this pit in my stomach, and Scott's got the pit in his stomach. And I just, I remember looking at him and saying, wouldn't I know Scott if, like, if Brian's not with us anymore? As his mother, shouldn't I know? Shouldn't I feel something? Shouldn't I know that he's not not here? Wouldn't that? It's not my right as a, as a mother to know that exact moment. Um, and I, I said, so, I mean, I don't, I don't feel that. I don't, I don't feel that loss. Um, and so I don't know what I thought. Honestly, I, 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 I just, I remember driving up, just begging and pleading with whoever I could think that would, would answer my call, um, you know, whatever higher power or spirit or faith, I just remember saying, you know, I'll be a better person. If, if, if just letting Ryan be okay, I'll, I will change whatever does not work and is not good. I will, I will change. Just don't let it be at the expense of my son. And so we drove and probably um, outside Barrier, which is about another 45 minutes away from the top of the hill. Scott, we hadn't heard from the RCMP since probably about 2 o'clock that morning. And I remember Scott having to stop the car almost every 15 minutes. Like his stomach hurt. He couldn't catch his breath. He had to pull over. He had to get out. He had to get air. Um, and we we followed behind a snowplow all the way up to the top and it was so slow going and you could just see the snow and I think the worst part for me is that you know in Alberta it it is quite cold but in BC the weather is different so even at that point I was like god just let it be like minus one like minus two we we can deal with that um but the moment we drove and every kilometer that we got a little bit closer the weather just steadily dropped the temperature until we were getting up and it was like minus 24. And I just thought there's, there is really little to any hope that, that 
he will have survived if he'd been out for this long in this temperature. And we arrived at the top. We went to the roommates, uh, Ryan's house first to met the roommates um, and sort of had an idea because at that point, search and rescue wasn't up. They don't come up until, um, until the light comes up. Although the canine unit, our RCMP had already been on the scene that night and had, had gone until early hours of the morning. And then they came back early the next morning. So they were the very first people that we talked to. As Heather mentioned, the RCMP conducted a hasty search the same night Heather and Scott arrived in Sun Peaks. I did manage to get an interview with someone from the RCMP, but I'm going to save that for the next episode and I'll reveal the reason why then. As the police continue their search, Heather and Scott met with Ryan's roommates and friends in Sun Peaks. Meanwhile, Kamloops Search and Rescue began to mobilize and prepare to conduct a search early the following morning. Alan Hobler was a search manager at the time that helped plan and execute the search for Ryan. We, we got the first phone call around midnight. Um, I, I had some friends text me on, on Facebook saying that it looked like there may be a missing person at Sun Peaks a little bit earlier than that. Um, and so there's a Facebook page that um, uh, is for Sun Peaks. And uh, I, I guess the fact that he was missing um, made it to that page and there was a lot of discussions on that page. And so then people started reaching out at me to me fairly early on. I think it was around nine o'clock or maybe even a little earlier than that. Um, I, I kind of ignored it. It's not too unusual for somebody not to show up to work. Um, um, but uh, so I went to bed and then the phone rang probably around midnight, um, just just as I was falling asleep. And it was the RCMP, and they discussed that file with me. Um, and they were having several members and a, and a canine team, um, a police canine team, go up to to follow up with an investigation. So we discussed the best way to to approach the search. Um, <clears throat> we decided it was best to wait, you know, a few hours until um, um, about 5 a.m. to have the SAR team come up, and that would give the RCMP enough time to sort of do an investigation and. Uh, determine, you know, what possible areas he could have been in and what the scenarios were. Um, we've seen, we've been called up to Sun Peaks a couple times in the past for very similar um, um, situations, and they'd always turned out to be that either somebody went to a friend's house or that they just turned their phone off and slept in. Uh, so it, it initially sort of felt like this could be another one of those. Um, however, you can never jump to that assumption. You always have to treat it as seriously. Early the next morning, Kamloops Search and Rescue put out a call for help from their volunteers and headed to Sun Peaks to start searching for Ryan. Their first step was to set up a command post and develop a search plan based on Ryan's movements leading up to his disappearance. You know, we have to call them out so they're not sitting around a SAR hall waiting to be tasked out. So uh, in this case, we waited till 5 a.m. or shortly after to actually page out the team. And so I did the page out and uh, we, we had a pretty good response from our members um, and so they deployed down to the search and rescue hall and we meet there, we muster there and then uh, deploy and then drive up as a team up to up to Sun Peaks and uh, we set up a command post and then we do some quick hasty assignments for some team members and then typically we, we will um, <clears throat> um, develop more detailed plans and longer strategies on, on, 
on the search. And there's multiple aspects of the search. Uh, typically what we look for is we try and determine all of the lost, lost person behavior category. So what were they doing if they're skiing or hiking? Um, and there's stats based on those type of behaviors. In this case, Ryan was at a house party and, and disappeared. So um, we need to determine what category, or we needed to try and determine what category we were going to put him in. A lot of what you hear is that, you know, he disappeared walking home from a house party, and, and uh, initially that's how it was reported to us too. But um, uh, the reality was is he was last seen inside the house at the party. So that's a little bit different. So he wasn't hiking or walking at the time. Um, so it made it a little harder to, to put him in a category. So we weren't sure if he was intoxicated or if he was using drugs or if indeed he just got lost walking home or just fell asleep. Um, so that made it tricky actually even determining what category to put him into. So typically what we do is we determine a search area, um, we determine last known point, and then we use the lost person behavior stats to set up what we call probability rings. So um, for in any given um, lost person behavior category, you know, 25% will be found within X many meters or kilometers. And so we set that up on the map and uh, then we start to focus on those higher probability locations. Uh, there's stats on find locations and stuff like that too. So we will deploy searchers to some of those locations and then start searching some of those higher probability find locations. So after a hasty search where we run out, we try and set up a perimeter, um, we try to do containment. Uh, then we start looking at sort of more in-depth search me methods and methodologies. Hello, nerds. Come listen to the History Nerds United podcast, and let's make history fun again. We interview today's best authors, whether they are established Pulitzer Prize winners or someone debuting their first book. Let us show you that history is not a boring class you took in high school, but a place where the best stories come from. And we don't just cover history. We also love to chat about true crime, biographies, memoirs, and so much more. So head on over to History Nerds United, and let us introduce you to your new favorite book and learn the story behind the story. History. You know, our initial investigations and our initial hasty searches, uh, you know, his house um, where he lived um, was very close to where the party house was. And there was really only two or three different routes he could have taken to get there and really obvious routes. Um, and there was lots of snow uh, the night before he disappeared. And the snow was really soft and deep, so to actually leave any paths or trails um, would have been really obvious. And even if he had stumbled or fallen off a path, uh, it should have been really obvious. Um, so kind of pretty early on, it really felt like we had a mystery. Uh, um, you know, all those obvious places um, didn't pan out, and we we dispersed even further. We hiked a lot of the trails and some of the ski runs, and it really quickly seemed um, unreasonable that that he's he just sort of you know got lost walking home from his friend's house. Going back to you know some of the previous searches we had there, where they always turned up at a friend's house. 
Um, so initially, that's kind of what it felt like. Um, there wasn't any obvious signs that he had he had gotten lost or fallen fallen off the trail or passed out or fallen asleep in a snowbank. Uh, we kind of ruled those ones out fairly quick, um, and it really felt like maybe he met a girl at the party or went to somebody else's place, um, and then just you know, slept in, missed work, and then decided not to answer the, his texts or check his his um, uh, email, and then maybe things sort of snowballed from there. That's where it kind of felt like initially. We were able to identify other footprints. Uh, there is a trail that um, um, left the village very close to the, the house where the party was at and went down to a wilderness area and um, and we followed that one and there were a couple sets of footprints going down that but um, um, so we were able to identify those tracks but we were able to tie that back to, to people who had gone down there earlier so we, we do know that even though it had, had snowed uh, that we were able to see the tracks that were below the snow and we were able to follow them as well um, the other thing we used on the search was was um, um, drones, and we've uh, experimented a lot with with um, drones and UAV or sorry um, infrared. Um, and one thing we found with infrared is it's really good at spotting older footprints in snow as well. Uh, so and they they were able to spot older tracks in the snow, especially you know sort of um, in that high probability area. So we checked those out as well. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing turned up that indicated any of the, any tracks that we found anywhere were Ryan's. And certainly, if he had left the road or the, any of the trails, we probably would have noticed and been able to follow it. While Sar set out to search for Ryan, Heather and Scott tried to comprehend the situation. They tried to piece together Ryan's state the night he vanished, and they continued to talk to police and investigators. So they were up as soon as, so probably about 8 o'clock, to set up the command centers. So probably about 9, they had started out with their group of um, volunteers, and then they had convergence, which are, you know, everyday people that volunteer off that have no real experience necessarily as a search and rescue operator. They just had whoever was willing to come out. So Ryan's roommates were, were part of that convergent group and anybody that was in the area as soon as they found out um, had shown up and they were able to, to give them areas that they would go with um, experienced search and rescues. So they had started around nine, nine thirty that morning and I remember us sitting in the ski patrol center. I actually, they had moved a trauma room out so that I could sit in the room all day because I couldn't, I couldn't do anything at that point. Uh, I could barely walk still. My Achilles was just uh, getting better, so everything I did was with a limp. So for me, searching out in the snow was near impossible. So I just remember sitting in this trauma room and them coming in, the, the um, search and rescue managers, and they're asking all the questions, and I, and it's it's trying it's so hard to explain to somebody who your son is or was, and and adequately explaining so that people know him as a person and how much he was valued and loved. And I, I know those are those are things that people go, yes, he must have been, but to get people to see it 
and feel it um, was difficult. So, you know, they're asking the questions and they're like, okay, so was he drinking? Yes, our understanding he was. At that point, we didn't know if he had taken any recreational drugs or not. Um, and I remember the one manager saying, you know, and there's slim to, there it would be a slim to no chance really uh, um, that given whatever he would have drinking, uh, drank and um, will have been out for this length of time in this weather that we will find him alive. And it, it, and maybe people will say that's, that's quite harsh, but I, I did appreciate the um, frankness of it because it's not that we didn't know that it's, it's not that I didn't know that every kilometer that I climbed up the hill or was driving for nine and a half hours that this was not going to be a, a good news story. So we were preparing ourselves all day on that Sunday that any moment they would find Brian, any moment. And, um, and then the next uh, chapter of this journey would begin, this grieving portion and stuff like that. And then they didn't. And I remember us going back to our hotel room. It was dark out. We had sat there all day. It was dark out. We had been up for over 36 hours. We're tired. We're shell-shocked. Um, we're grief-stricken, heartbroken, every word that you... And I'm fearful. I don't, I don't, I don't know what's happening and, and why it's happening. And, and I think your immediate thought is, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? And then you, you recognize um, as you go through this months and then years later that um, it's, you know, I mean, it's not happening to us or you, but you just think, I don't know who it should have happened to. You know what I mean? There, there should be nobody that this should have happened to, but you just think, why us? Why, why us? And um, our friends, we had five of them that had um, disregarded our um, wishes to stay at home because they said, well, we're, we're, we want to come out. And we're like, there's no point. Like we're going to get there and they're either, Ryan's either going to be at, you know, uh, having an overnight at some girl's house that we don't know about. That must have happened because where else could he have been? Or if the worst has happened, um, he went out and, um, you know, got wandered off in the snow and got caught up in the elements um, and succumbed to those. Then, like, it's whatever's going to happen is going to, we're going to know that. I mean, whoever would have thought this would have been the reality? You just, you couldn't even fathom that. And so don't, there's no point in anybody coming. And they ignored us. And I will be forever grateful that they did. Because they came into the hotel room. They sat with us that night when the RCMP officer, the constable that was in charge at the time, and one of the SARS case managers came in. And they said we, we didn't find him. Despite their best efforts, the search by the police and SAR for Ryan was mystifying. SAR spent a full day looking for him, and nothing was found. And it's not like Ryan would be hard to spot. As I mentioned before, Ryan is six feet tall, with blonde hair, brown eyes, and he weighs about 180 pounds. He was last seen wearing dark jeans, a gray and white shirt, a blue coat, and a burgundy ball cap. But there is no trace of Ryan in Sun Peaks. With the probability of Ryan still being alive incredibly low, the SAR team made the difficult decision to call off their search. We've seen a few searches like this. Um, 
Um, it is common. Uh, often it's really baffling until you get resolution. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's years later you, you find out where where the person was or what the scenario was. And often it was some different bizarre behavior that you really didn't consider or you didn't put a high probability on. Um, but um, and it's also possible to miss um, subjects too and that happens sometimes as well uh, we don't search at 100% probability of detection um, you know we often search at lower what we call POD probability of detection and that allows us to search more areas and have a better search effectiveness but at the same time it does create the possibility that that um, something or somebody might be missed in the search yeah, so, um, you know, we got called at midnight. We deployed the team around 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. We were up there about 7. Um, and then we went home. I think we were back at the SAR Hall by midnight. So we hammered it. We gave it a full, very hard day. Uh, we debated whether or not to do a short day, two, two shorter days, and we decided let's just burn out the SAR team. Um, he'd already been missing, you know, over 24 hours by this point, and it had gotten cold. Um, by the time we went home, I think it was minus 21. So the probability of um, him still being alive was almost zero at that time, if he was in the search area. If he, um, and so we determined that we were better off making every effort we could on that day versus, um, um, you know, extending it two days and doing two shorter days. You know, our... our Searchers are all volunteers, um, and we do tend to burn out our volunteers, um, and especially on the harder searches. And this was one, definitely one of the harder searches. Uh, you know, we had people for you know 12, 18 hours um, waiting around in snow, and they were completely exhausted. And the probability of uh, successful or a happy outcome uh, by the time we went we left was near zero um so for us to be able to you know find a living subject um was really non-existent at that time so um the urgency um, diminishes after we believe a subject is deceased with the rcmp and sar having no leads and having exhausted their searches they began to pack up and leave sun peaks if the search for Ryan was going to continue, it was going to have to be driven and organized by Heather Scott and an army of volunteers. I remember her saying, the constable saying to, to us, you know, on your way out of town tomorrow or the next day, just stop by the RCMP detachment and we'll tell you what the next steps are. And I, I remember Scott and I just sort of looking at her dumbfounded, like, like tomorrow or the next day, like, but you haven't found him. So how on earth could we possibly leave we can, what like we can't he's our son like we're just gonna you're just gonna wait until what the snow melts or somebody stumbles over him like he's not he's not a trash bag he's not he's he's our son and and he matters and and we love him and i just couldn't imagine as his mother just saying okay i can do no more and at that point i didn't know we could do more i can do no more but we can't leave and so, um... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And I also remember the... the the case manager saying to us, you know, there's still a possibility because we haven't found a medic. There's so much construction that was going on at the time up there. And, and because it's a resort village, there's so many people that don't um, stay there all the time. They, they come in, they might rent it out on weekends. Some people only come for six or seven weeks out of, out of the year. And then they go back across the pond somewhere else. And, and that's where they live. And so some of these places are quite vacant. And so they said to us, you know, it's possible that he could be in a shed, a basement, or an outbuilding. Like he could be, he could have found himself, you know, a little bit cold, a little disoriented, and got himself in there and got stuck. And I, I, and I grasped onto that, like, like hope is there. Like, okay, like, you know, he's not going to be warm and doing well um, necessarily in the shed, the outbuilding or the basement, but I don't know what's there. Maybe there's a tarp, maybe there's a blanket, maybe there's some candles. So while he may not be doing great, his phone's dead um, and he's been out for a while and it's cold, I mean, there's still a possibility that that we're going to find him and this will all be okay. And then comes the, so we will put this out to the RCMP and they'll put it out to the media outlets and we won't be back until um, there's been a new task given to us. And logically, I, I understand that. I will never say I don't understand. And I will never say that um, the search and rescue, the case manager particularly that we dealt with, was not a father and didn't care and wasn't beside himself um, with not being able to find him. I could I could see the, the, the pain that he had in his eyes. but But in that moment... When he said that, that we won't be back, it was like, like this death call for my son. Because you just told me that he could be in a shed, he could be in an outbuilding, he could be in a basement, and he could be found, but no one's going to search for him. And emotionally, I think that it, it broke my heart, right? Um, and so... They left, and we sort of just talked about it and as a group. And then the next day, after this fitful sleep, we get up and go back down to the ski patrol, and everything's been put back exactly the way it was the day before. <laughs> Nothing was the same. There's no, no um, makeshift center. There's, there's no searching. And so Monday, February 19th, I think we woke up to know that Unless we wanted, we were going to do it. Ryan was not going to be found. 
And so I think for us, you know, you have all these things, all these grief, heartbreaking feelings, torment, fear, all of those things. We might have felt them a little bit on the Sunday, but Monday you had to turn that off because now my logical side had to come. We had to figure out how to search, what we needed to search, um, how to get the equipment, what equipment would we need, um, and, and how to do all of that. And we had to figure that out with absolutely no input, expertise, or experience on our side. Heather took to social media, asking friends and family to help search for Ryan, and the response was overwhelming. Volunteers from both BC and Alberta flocked to help look for Ryan. Ultimately, Heather estimates that almost a thousand people would come help in the search for Ryan. One of these volunteers was Jerry Tromblet, a Sun Peaks resident, who took on the difficult task of training new volunteers on how to search for Ryan. So I don't think we met him until March. And then he came in and then he didn't leave until he left in May. So this became his full-time job. He came in and, and we searched for Ryan every day from February 19th, that Monday, every single day, Scott and or I, mostly Scott for the first little bit until my, my leg got better, but we searched every single day until we left June 17th. And so... You know, where his parents, uh, of course, uh, probably people don't find that extraordinary. However, Jerry came in in March when he came back and he became, well, a knight in shining armor, to be honest to me. Uh, he searched. He was there every single morning at eight. Um, we would be a little bit pokey as, as the days went on. Um, but he would be there to open everything up at eight o'clock and he would stay until five every night. He never really missed a day unless he had to um, go back to Vancouver for a couple of days to to see about um, business there. And then he'd be back and he searched. And he we, we, we learned some of the things that we needed to do. We researched some of the things we, we needed to do. And then Jerry said about, um, like, implementing that, refining that, and um, training all the new volunteers and how... Um, he felt was best to go about doing the searches. And he took uh, that, that physical um, aspect of it and would go out with the search parties because at that time, Scott started, we got equipment donated to us. And so Scott was running um, the Bobcat and Digger. And so Scott would go through, it was an extraordinary amount of snow that had fallen that year. And so you could have had um, snow banks anywhere from 8 to 14 feet. And it continued to, to snow every day until um, mid-April. Like, it was it was an, a crazy amount. You could have people go out and search, and then the next day you wondered if they had even ever been there. And so we were hampered by that, not understanding where we had searched and if you could, you could see all of that. And so at that point, Scott was digging through um, snow berms and snow banks, Every day. And so he would do that 10 hours a day. He'd get up and break up the snow and dig the snow every day. And I think I'm amazed at how we have processed this. And maybe we haven't. Maybe that hasn't even hit us yet. But can you imagine a father by himself, for the most part, sitting in that digger 
And every single dig that you put into that ground for 10 hours a day for two months, if every single dig will be the one that will bring up your, your son, right? If, if, if he's going to be whole, if you're going to cause damage by digging and having to process that and still doing it, because if you don't, who will? When Jerry Tremblay first heard about Ryan's disappearance, he happened to be heading on vacation. Over the coming days while he was away, he monitored the search for Ryan and was sure he'd turn up before he was back in Sun Peaks. But as he and his wife followed the events and day after day, no news came of Ryan, Jerry, once he got back to Sun Peaks, offered to help train the volunteers Heather was corralling on social media. I thought, well, you know, I'll see what I can do. So, uh, um went down to the uh, command center and basically just sort of offered up whatever they need, you know, whatever they want me to do, I'm happy to help. And, um, you know, kind of the, one of the things I started working with was one group doing a bit of a search and I could see that, um, they had very quickly, the number of volunteers coming out was like, okay, this is getting pretty serious. Um, you know, I've got to try and pull something together so when they, the volunteers show up each day that we've got a plan because it would be nothing worse than a lot of the people coming from Alberta and everywhere else coming here and, you know, not being able to be productive um, considering how far they came and so forth. Uh, at that time, uh, Scott was very busy with, you know, interfacing with everybody on the mountain, getting information, uh, getting excavators and, you know, he was basically digging up the snow banks on the side of the road and sort of systematically working through all of, uh, Sun Peaks. Um, so he was pretty, pretty tied up. Uh, Heather was interfacing with all the different emergency departments and rescue and everything else, uh, social media. So I kind of felt that the, the least I could do is try and see if I can take at the very least try and take some of that that burden off of the volunteers uh so i kind of just dug into that and then with the help of my wife helping to get the resources and such um we would just show up there each morning with a a plan of where we were going to go and and try to put together some training um so when the volunteers showed up we'd have a little seminar and then i tried to get some of the ones that were coming back you know second and third and fourth time try to get them to sort of be like a team lead so they could actually get involved with the training of the new volunteers buddying up with them and uh which was a pretty tight group and uh, i could tell by just as we were working out there doing their search that uh people went from kind of being um kind of not really sure where they were going with all this to actually feeling at the end of the day that they knew the, the methods of our search and how we would do it and so forth. And they really just fell right into the groove. Um, and um, it just, yeah, just a general conversation was like, it was my gauge of how people were feeling things were going. Um, so yeah, each day we would do that. We would go out um, and we got heavily into uh, sort of laying out an area that we were going to search with flagging and paint. So we would, mark off an area and we make a grid and uh, it was a very very um, systematic 
how we would go about it. And it was important that we stayed that way because the tendency would be for um, you know volunteers to sort of stray from the you know if we didn't keep things pretty tight in our search and our methods that you know it could get random pretty quick and that just was you know wasn't going to be good for our search and it wasn't wouldn't be good for our volunteers where we initially started searching was we actually started doing uh the, the, there's homes on this one street most of them are homes some sometimes they're a, a fourplex or duplex whatever but they got fairly big yards and the yards themselves back right into um a forested area and so we took each lot and we marked it off grid pattern with 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 flagging with spray paint you name it and literally would comb through each lot one at a time and the average lot i think was taking us about if we had a good turnout each day we could maybe do a lot a day about that and that would be a big turnout to do that Given the amount of snow and the geographical terrain of Sun Peaks, Jerry and the searchers had to be very methodical in how they searched for Ryan. Grid by grid, property by property, the searchers, side by side, combed anywhere they thought Ryan could be. Uh, some of the areas we were working on were very steep. The banks were, uh, so we would tend to, instead of going to the, instead of working down a steep hill, we would work our way up it. It was more controlled. And we, we'd be, you know, literally crawling up it but there was a method to crawling up this the steep uh bank and it was a matter of actually sort of sticking your knee into the snow bank putting some weight on it then you stick your other knee into it a little higher and you kind of just slowly work your way up and we're like i say shoulder to well when we're not shoulder to shoulder we're we're about oh i think you know probably three, three feet between us um, roughly, and we would work up, and we would work up a, you know, um, a track. So basically, we would always mark our our right and our left, and we would we would go up um, like a column, you know, side by side. We go up evenly. We don't one person doesn't advance faster than another because basically it's very difficult to keep our our lanes, basically, that's what we're doing. Is what we're doing. We're creating lanes going up the hill, and we're probing it. We were doing uh, a 12-inch grid, so that's basically every 12 inches you would you would push the probe in. You either push it in until you hit ground, uh, um, or you hit something, or you basically went down to the about. Oh, I think we were going about four feet. So there was no need to probe any deeper than four feet because. That would have been back before the beginning of the season when we had that little snow. So, so that would be how we would do a, a steep bank. Um, it was more on the flat. Uh, once again, we'd mark out our areas like a big grid pattern, and we each have our lane. And we had it was critical we stay in it. We shoulder to shoulder. We advance. Uh, if we got into areas that were very heavily treed, we want to still do the same type of grid. But as we, uh, as one of us is might be approaching a tree, there'll be a, a tree well. Then between you and your partner, you decide, okay, one of you might have to go into that tree well and scope it out while the other person probes around it. But we all constantly have to, because once we get into the trees, it can be dense enough that it's very difficult to keep your line. And then you can have people advance faster 
and then the line can get turned. And so it's all so critical. You, you constant communication between you and your partner on either side to manage this. Without the hundreds of volunteers who came out to help search for Ryan, it would have been impossible to cover the vast area of Sun Peaks. Those who showed up to search for Ryan had to brace the cold weather and long hours in hopes of finding any trace of where Ryan may have gone. It was unbelievable, and that was really, that's, it, it was due to Heather. Uh, her on social media, uh, her group of friends back, back home, uh, amazing support, unbelievable. Um, and the thing is, they came out every day. I mean, a new group would be coming out each day, and, you know, it had a lot of return. Uh, volunteers, plane loads, bus loads, drive, they come in and they were raring to go. It was cold. It was, um, I know we were in around, I think at nighttime temperatures were probably about minus 20, maybe it was minus 15 to minus 20. And during the day, I, I kind of forgetting on that number. I, I just can't remember for sure. But, um, you know, the other thing was good is that, um, you know, it used to be a time where the, the volunteers would come out and we would get out to the, to the where we were going to start doing our, our search. And then at lunchtime, we would go back to the command center. And very quickly, they were all on board is that, hey, we don't need to go back to the command center. Just bring our lunches out to us. We'll eat here right right on location and uh, continue on searching. Um, they'd start early. They'd work late. And uh, it's a long time to be, you know, in some cases we were in snowshoes. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, pretty, pretty impressive. Exhausted both physically and emotionally from weeks of searching and harsh winter conditions, Heather and Scott tried to stay positive. As they continued talking to friends and roommates of Ryan, they were able to determine some of what Ryan's state of mind might have been like the night he vanished. I asked Heather what her initial thoughts were when it came to what happened to her son and what some of the prevailing theories were surrounding his disappearance. You know, I, I don't, I talk about blessings. The first, the th- very first day that we were up there, um, we had so many people were coming up and so many people were um, sending good wishes. Um, and I would just remember looking at Scott going, like, we're going to find that these are our blessings. And I don't know if it was just sort of by unspoken um conversation with because it wasn't really a conversation with us but the the feeling that um we would find the blessings we would look for the blessings every single day because otherwise this is just a tragedy and i refuse to believe that ryan's life up until now has been anything but a gift and so we we started off um thinking that and so one of the blessings as as um horrible as it sounds is that Ryan was almost 21, six foot, 180 pounds, fast, athletic, strong. He wasn't confrontational. Um, he, he didn't, he wasn't instigational. Um, he wasn't your Casanova, so you don't have to worry about going out to a bar and he's hitting on all the girls. It doesn't matter if they have boyfriends or not. That, that wasn't his personality. So, um, I, honestly, I took it for the facts that they were, that, you know, he had gone out and stumbled home and either got, um, was disoriented, um, maybe had taken something, um, uh, because after a while we did find out that he had taken some recreational drugs to this point. I couldn't tell you exactly how much or even what 
in entirety he could have possibly taken because everybody's pretty either quiet about that or they're not as truthful as as um as i think as i think just a personal thought um so i keep thinking okay he's got disoriented he's you know he thought he was superman he thought he could fly you know fly went up here went up there we don't know what direction he took um and so you you think of all those things but here's my blessing in the sense that thinking about something happening to ryan that um was nefarious or anything like that um i it wasn't my first thought it still really isn't my first thought um now if you had told me it was my 20 year old daughter i probably would have thought okay she got disoriented same sort of things that that ryan would have that probably would have sat for about 60% of what, but then 40% would have thought something would have happened to her. Somebody did something to her um, because she's a, she's a female and, and not big and not strong. If you had asked me about my 12 year old daughter at the time, I probably would have thought there's no way she would have wandered off and been disoriented. So what happened to her probably being um, targeted would have been 90% of my fear. So with Ryan, I, I thought what face value was. He, he wandered off and maybe overdosed. I think at some point, you know, those are our, the, the, the theories that go around. If you're trying to think logically of what the theories are, wandered off. We don't know how far he, he fit. Um, and if he wasn't feeling the effects of drugs and or alcohol, how far would have gone? Didn't know the place really well. Did he get stuck? Passed out. Um, there was a thought that perhaps maybe he had passed out in a snowbank and was covered up with um, snowplow, or the snowplow picked him up with with the snow and perhaps dumped him in the snowplow areas. Um, there was a thought that, of course, maybe an overdose might have happened either at the house or somewhere um, at, at another place or on the way home. Uh, and then, of course, um, because. Um, it's a small area. There's no RCMP uh, contact up there or presence every single day. You know, is it possible? That we know that some people will drink and they may assume that they're okay to drive. It's a small area. You don't have to go far. So the thought that somebody could have been drinking and driving and may have hit him, panicked and decided um, to take him somewhere where they wouldn't, where somebody, they wouldn't, it wouldn't come back to them. Those are the top theories that, that we probably could think of. I've, I've heard them all. I mean, even if I didn't think of them myself, um, you know, people have thought it um, relevant to send messages to me um, either on his Facebook page or just directly message me themselves to tell me all the terrible things that could have happened to him. And so I, I do know that it could be a whole range of things. But what I learned in the first couple of days is that I can't create an alternate reality. All I can go is with facts. Because if I create this alternate reality, every reaction I'm going to have is going to come from that place. So every I'm going to look at everybody suspiciously. I'm going to not take people's generosity um, not take their humanity um, at face value. I'm always going to suspect there's a reason behind it. And I didn't, that's not what I wanted. That is not the blessing. That is not the gift of, of, of Ryan. And so, yes, any one of those things could have happened. Yes, Ryan could have been targeted. Yes, Ryan could have met with 
foul play in some in some ways. Um, it could be accidental, any of those things. And when the time comes, if that is the case, then I will face that head on. But until that time comes, I'm not naive. Um, I'm not a Pollyanna that wants to think the best of everything. But what I want to do is take the facts that have been given to me and I want to just lean on those at the moment. And so there isn't any. He, They have the last sighting and then there's nothing. It's such a vast area and unless you've ever been to Sun Peaks, you would not know how mountainous, how far-reaching, how much trees, how much the train is. Um, and even if someone decided to take him and dump him anywhere along the way, there's so many places that, that he could be. And we've just, there's no way to search it all right now. If you know anything about Ryan's disappearance, I urge you to contact Kamloops RCMP at 250-828-3000 and quote file number 2019-5071. You can also leave an anonymous tip if you call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS or submit your tip online to kamloopscrimestoppers.ca. On the next and final installment of The Disappearance of Ryan Stuka, I'll talk to a missing persons investigator from the RCMP and dive deeper into some of the theories of what people believe may have happened to Ryan. I'm going to leave you with a clip from that episode. Thanks for listening to a podcast for the missing with me, Tyler Hooper. Absolutely every avenue available to us. And I think what is so difficult there is I think there tends to be a perception in the public, and I've certainly heard this portrayed by the media, that somebody knows something. I've heard that said quite frequently, that somebody must know something, somebody always knows something. And in my time of doing this work, I have really come to believe that that is not the case. I really do believe that in a large number of our unsolved cases, uh, particularly these, these unknowns, no one knows anything more than what they've already told us. And that's a difficult thing to, to accept, but I really do think that's the case. And it's, it's a very helpless and, and frustrating feeling. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.